keeping cattle. Go ahead. Just start milling around quietly first, and then you can make noise. Uh, we need lots of sheep and cattle and dove noises from everybody at a certain point. You'll hear it. Just do it appropriately. You'll hear cattle, and you can make the cattle noise and the dove noise. I don't know a dove noise. Anybody got a dove noise? Oh, that's pretty good. Yeah. I, I can't do that. So um, feel free to jump on in with those noises. And anyone else who wants to come up and be driven out of the temple, I mean, it's pretty... Pretty exciting. Come on up. Yeah. Assume the position. Start grazing. You know, this is a courtyard. All right. You guys can go down. Go ahead. Get down there. Get into character. That's all right. All right. Good job. Mill around. Do whatever sheep and cattle and doves do. We've got some money changers here. When it was almost time... For the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found cattle and sheep and doves and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So, he made a whip out of cords. And he drove all from the temple courts. Both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, Get me out of here. Stop turning my father's temple into a market. His disciples remembered that it is written. The Jews then responded to him. What sign can you give us to prove your authority to do this? Jesus answered them. They replied. He, he built this temple in, in 46 years. He can do it in three days. But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what Jesus had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words Jesus had spoken. This is the word of the Lord. Good job, actors. Probably. Now the kids are going to school where it's less scary. 
It's okay. This is, uh, is going to be good. Maybe for the communion, we'll get this out of the way. Could be a little distracting. Are the adults just as distracted by money on the ground as the kids? This is actually kind of a childhood dream of mine. Is there, like just finding money all over the ground? All right. Let us pray. Jesus, you came. And you had emotions. You had followers. You had people looking at you askance. You filled the tables of so many. And for those who welcome you in, you overturn our tables as well. Jesus, we come here today in different places. Will you show us how to find ourselves in this story? Questioning you, wondering where you get the authority. Following you, wondering the same thing. And maybe with tables that need to be overturned. Jesus, speak to us today in the way that we need to best hear and respond. In your name we pray. Amen. The question of the week last week was, what gets you really upset? So here's a few answers in no order. Mean people. These are what you guys answered. When people go to Starbucks for coffee and get frappuccinos. <laughs> and when people get irrationally upset. That was the same person, so I don't know. <laughs> Somebody said, what gets you really upset? Everything. Got to work on those anger issues. Okay. Unexpected things in life. A couple of people said injustice, unkindness, cruelty. Someone said one word starts with a capital T. Hmm. Tuesday? Maybe? <laughs> when someone at work or home repeatedly eats your leftovers out of the common fridge. Yeah, okay. Someone said just um, ask my wife. Uh, while I'm at it, here's a quote from Anne Lamott. I smiled back at her. I thought such awful thoughts that I cannot even say them out loud because they would make Jesus want to drink gin straight out of the cat dish. <laughs> Jesus getting angry at our anger. I don't know. Anne Lamott. She has a way. And, uh, Thomas Akempis said this, Be not angry that you cannot make others as you wish them to be, since you cannot make yourself as you wish to be. Jesus was really upset in the temple that day. 
Good job, Eric. <laughs> Way to scare the kids. No. <laughs> there he is in the temple. And a quick history on the temple. The temple was sacred because that's where God's presence was. That's where you could meet with God. You could walk with God. The sanctuary has its roots way back in the Garden of Eden where Adam and Eve walked and talked and communicated with God. And that place, that paradise, was paradise because of his presence where everything was perfect. But when Adam and Eve and we decided to distrust God and serve ourselves, or to paraphrase Tim Keller's definition of idolatry, they let other things besides God give them their ultimate meaning and significance. Hmm. Do we tend toward that? Well, God expelled them and us from the garden, from true shalom, this paradise of joy, bliss, love in God's presence, where nothing is missing and nothing is broken. From there, they were sent out and we were sent out away from God's presence into a world of death, decay, evil, because of disobedience. And God sent them away and then set up something outside the garden. You know what that was? Cherubim, angels with a sword, a flaming sword, placed at the Garden of Eden to symbolize that coming back into God's presence was going to take a blood sacrifice, a deer sacrifice. So when later God's people built the temple after a succession of tents and tabernacles, they built the temple, and this temple was, had a holy of holies inside of it, a sanctuary, a place where only a select few could meet God face to face. And this this system of hierarchical steps was the border of the land of Israel and then the walls of Jerusalem, the temple mount, the temple walls itself, and then going further and further in, the next part, the largest court, was the court of the Gentiles. That means all nations in the Greek. The court of the Gentiles. And that's where all the animals were. That's where Jesus went off. The court of the Gentiles. And then, of course, you have the court of the women off to the side. You have the court of the Israelites a little bit closer to God's presence. The court of priests. The sanctuary. And finally, the holy of holies. And the thing that separated the Holy of Holies from the rest was a veil, a thick, heavy curtain. And on that veil were depicted palm trees, grasses, symbolizing the Garden of Eden, the original sanctuary, the original temple, and a flaming sword was on that veil embroidered inside the temple. This was a place where only the high priest went one day a year on the Day of Atonement, and could go in only with a sacrifice of a lamb, a spotless lamb as a sacrifice. That flaming sword, nothing gets in to God's presence 
without a sacrifice going under that sword. So let's look at the drama of this story. Did Jesus fly off the handle and lose, lose it? I don't think so. Amid the chaos of the animals and the, and the market, the sellers yelling, bargaining, he was angry, but he was in complete control of himself and the situation. He had no fear, no hesitance. He was not torn. He was angry and expressing his anger directly. He had a physical body, but he didn't use it. He didn't use physical intimidation. Yet he carried authority somehow. And everyone sensed it. They felt it. They wondered about it. Where do you get this? And I hope that came through. They knew he had it. Did you see what he did with the whip? Uh, some commenters say that whip was a, a bunch of reeds. You know, like a, a handful of weeds. He wasn't going around whacking people and hurting them, tearing flesh. He was uh, using it to drive the cattle and the sheep. So why did hundreds, hundreds flee out of the courts with all their, all their animals? What kind of authority did he carry with him? Well, that was kind of a difficult thing for an actor. Good job. I said, don't be physically intimidating. Just make sure you convey the authority of the only son of the Most High Yahweh, the God-man Jesus Christ. You know, how do you do that as an actor? But great job, Eric. Um, everyone sensed that authority. They felt it. They wondered about it, where he got it, but they didn't question that he had it. There was something about his presence, his authority. People knew he had the right to do it, and that's what scared them off. They said, give us a sign as evidence of your authority. They didn't ask where he got it. I mean, they asked where he got it, but they didn't say, do you have it? They, they could see that he had that authority. And Jesus gave them an answer, an answer they didn't get. He gave them a sign. This is my place. I own it. I am it. They missed it. And we'll get back to that. But they were out of there. Some kind of authority drove, drove them out. He was angry. Why? Well, these people didn't know why. And for you too, if you come around Jesus and start beginning to think about allowing him to have some kind of authority in your life, he's going to start throwing some tables over. And maybe uh, different ones than you think or than, or than you want him to. Wait a minute, Jesus, don't touch that table. Jesus says, I may give you reasons later, but because of who I am, I have the right to do it. And he asks us to accept, accept that because of who he is and no other reason. And Jesus forces us in this story to make a big decision about who he is. Mark alluded to this in a recent sermon. Jesus is either a complete fraud, a, a lunatic, or a liar, or he's Lord. This guy throwing over tables will never, can never, 
be some self-help teacher. Someone to turn to for a little taste of wisdom when we need it. Or someone we summon to our table when we need something. Garcon, chop, chop. Come, I need a little prayer answered. A better job and a, a, a changed spouse. Amen. Now off with you and be lively. Jesus shows the righteous anger of God when he's treated that way. That was what was happening in this temple. And Jesus, his disciples knew from the scripture, was consumed by zeal for his father's house. And it was being misused. It had everything to do with who Jesus was and with his one purpose. We were thinking about doing this drama and I was thinking about how it may have looked, sounded, and felt and I thought of the story of Luke 4. Really quickly, fantastic story, but Jesus had been doing miracles. Everyone, the word was going out. He was well spoken of by everyone. He comes to his hometown. He goes into the synagogue. He reads from the prophet Isaiah and he says, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And these people are like, oh, hometown boy, he speaks so well. He's doing so well. What a great guy. And they don't lose it when he says that all of the ancient scripture is being fulfilled right now in me, Jesus, hometown boy. And they don't lose it until he tells them a story. He reminds them of something they all knew about Elijah. And when Elijah, what God healed the foreigner. When God healed Naaman the Syrian and not the Israelites, that's when his hometown crowd loses it. It says, the whole crowd rose up and started yelling at him. All the people were furious, drove him from the town, took him to a cliff to throw him off, but then he walked right through the crowd. And he went on his way. I always wondered about that. Jesus didn't like trick him or just disappear. You know, he didn't say, hey, look over there. You know, <laughs> he just walked right through the crowd. What kind of authority must they have felt from him if they are about to kill him because he pointed out their cultural blindness? And then he walks right through the crowd. And that was what I think happened in the temple, too. They all knew he had the right to turn over their tables, their cultural tables, even if they didn't get it and get why. They didn't see their idolatry and their cultural blindness, but Jesus does. He comes in. He sees the money changers and the animals for sacrifice. And he knows this is the system. You can't go into God's presence without a sacrifice. They had foreign money. They had to change their money so they could buy an animal, sacrifice it, get done, and get to the drive-in McFalafel before it closed. They were doing their duty. They were in and out, getting it done, checking it off the list. Sunday, things to do. God's house of prayer was turned into a market. 
There was no time for quiet reflection on the meaning. This animal is paying the price that I owe. My life is spared until next year. And, and how am I doing? I don't love God with my whole heart. I don't love my neighbor as myself. There is no quietude in there for them to even scratch the surface of the idea that Gentiles could be their neighbor. It was too crazy with the commercialism. The temple was a place for that kind of reflection. There is a way for me to be spared through the sacrifice of another. And these divisions, barriers we've set up are artificial and need to come down. Jesus sees. He knows they don't get it. And he's upset. They're not ready for me. He has his eyes on the cross. They're not ready for a savior. This thing they're doing is rote habit. It's a frenzied trip to the marketplace. They're not praying. The one thing he had on his mind was that he had come to die for all these people, for each of us. We don't get it, so he must wake us up, throw some tables, scatter the things that distract us from who he is in our lives. When Matthew and Mark tell this story, they say that Jesus says, he quotes scripture and he says, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. That was the name of the court where they were, the Gentiles. We're all nations. But you have made it a den of robbers. The court of the Gentiles in Greek, it's ethnos, ethne, meaning the nations. Jesus was saying, I'm not cleansing the temple of the Gentiles what many devout Jews thought the Messiah was going to do. I am cleansing the temple for them, for the nations, all of them. Jesus was challenging the sacrificial system altogether and saying that the Gentiles, the unclean, the others, could now go directly to God in prayer, past that flaming sword. What? How? The Gentiles... We're in the furthest out court. They couldn't even get past that. They can't go into the Holy of Holies. Jesus said that all people could now come to God apart from the Hebrew sacrificial system. The one final high priest, the one final sacrifice had come. And the disciples and others saw that at the moment when Jesus died on the cross, that very veil with that flaming sword was torn from top to bottom. The earth shook and rocks split. The sacrifice had come and survived, was slaughtered by that sword. And then rose again. This was the single purpose that Jesus had on his mind and that his disciples couldn't comprehend. What if the one thing on Jesus' mind could always be on our minds?
Can we focus on him? As I talk to people and reflect on my own life, I, I think that what's on our minds often is how we stack up to others. I have this image in my mind of, of some kind of line, uh, some kind of uh, line of achievement. And we're always checking it out. If, you know, achievement is over there and, uh, you know, we're in line. We're always seeing where we are compared to others. It's like we're in the southwest line and, you know, you have your, you have your boarding pass and you're like, what do you, what do you got? Oh, B-19? Oh, okay, I'm B-21. Go ahead. You're better than me, I guess. Yeah. You're always, you know, kind of checking it out. Wait, is that guy B-22? What's he doing? Hey. Oh. You know, it's this kind of achievement line. And I think about this. Uh, I think about this and how this line in, in our culture is so shaped by our culture. And it's so advantageous to some. And, you know, we have these categories, white, male, upper middle class, educated, able-bodied, straight, beautiful. And these things in our culture help us get in front a little. I won't even go into the smaller categories like tall, full head of hair, <laughs> svelte trimmed eyebrows. But the big ones, the big ones define our lives. And we often do the same thing in our expressions of spiritual fitness as well. If, if achievement's over there, maybe God is over there. And we're, we're all in this line and we kind of check, check, it, check it out. You know, we check our boarding pass and say, oh, well, how, how are you doing in your spiritual closeness to God? Or what? Well, I got... I got a little addiction to TV here. What do you got? Oh, alcoholic. Oh, okay. You're back there. Slide on back. You know, we kind of line ourselves up. And I was thinking about that. And I was thinking about this, this line. And, you know, I've, I've heard this phrase. Uh, you know, as you, you're looking at someone, you admire spirit, spiritual fitness in them. And, you know, uh, oh, Oh, you're ahead of me. You're anointed. Oh, look, check out him. He's anointed. I've actually heard that phrase before. Um, Jesus says, no. Look at me and my sacrifice for you, for all of you. Can we focus on him? Jesus says, God is no longer over there at the end of this hierarchical, culturally patterned, lineup. He's right here. And your cultural barriers are blinding you. I thought of this line going to God and if God was a gem of unimaginable um, beauty and uh, value, something that made the greatest diamond on earth look, look like a, a lump of mud, there's God. Imagine that beautiful gem. And what does a gem have? A gem has millions uh, of facets. This is an infinite number of 
incredibly beautiful facets. And that's God. And if we're all lined up in this kind of culturally shaped line, then we're only getting him at one angle. And I wonder what it would be like if we could step out of that culturally shaped line and just get another look at God. If we could get out of these uh, kind of cultural things that entrapped the Jews in their time and us, we might be able to see God, the creator of the universe, this, this unimaginably beautiful gem, a different facet of God. What if you could step out of this line and see, oh, from another perspective of another type of person, another culture? What if you could see, oh, oh, that's how God loves me. Oh, oh, let me go over here. Oh, my gosh, that's how messed up I am. I didn't know. Wasn't there a line in a song about blind spots? Where did I hear that? Was that in the liturgy? Okay, maybe I was just making that up. We have these blind spots. I was reading Sung Chan Ra, fantastic book, um, The Next Evangelicalism. He quotes Paul Metzger, a book I didn't read, called Consuming Jesus, Beyond Race and Class Divisions in a Consumer Church. So... Get ready to have some tables thrown a little bit here. He says, Paul Metzger says, North American Christianity has trouble understanding and living out the gospel because the church has become all too captive to the consumerist mindset that focuses attention on meeting needs, personal growth, and personal choice. We as the church have sold our souls to gain the material affluence of the world. Jesus needs to cleanse the temple again today. He needs to overturn the tables of commerce and consumption for consumer Christianity continues to turn the temple into a market. Greedy zeal for a false utopian vision of homogeneity and upward mobility threatens to consume the church. Rebuilding the walls of division between those of different ethnicities and classes through free market consumer church growth strategies as well as prosperity gospel preaching to the poor. Our short-term desire to keep our church attendees happy has led to an effective ministry that serves white middle-class suburbanites but has essentially become irrelevant in proclaiming and demonstrating the kingdom principles of peace and justice. Jesus identifies with the poor and he challenges us to identify with them as well. Christianity often energizing offers energizing hope that mobilizes the church to become downwardly mobile and to partner with the downtrodden to take action and do something about their oppressive circumstances. This is a a table of mine, a table of ours, a table of the American church that needs to be thrown over and Many of us here are praying for that to happen. And I think it is in some ways. What if we can get out of our lines, cultivate relationships with people with other perspectives, see God 
and his great love and sacrifice for us in a new way. To hear their stories. Victoria Mejia is leading our diversity dialogue once a month. I encourage you to sign up for it if you would like to be a part of some of these conversations. She has challenged us to uh, talk to folks in our circles of influence, people we know, and just listen to a different perspective. Listen to how people experience race and culture in this country. And there's also another way we can kind of connect up with our neighbors. Um, we have some collective neighbors right here in this space. And so some of us have talked about doing a lot of event, trying to come and connect with the events that are happening right here in the Soul Collective. We might be able to see Jesus and his sacrifice in a new way as we forge relationships with people in our neighborhoods, people in this neighborhood, in this very space. Some of, some of us have been doing that. Ask John about the poetry slam. You may see God, the God of the universe. You may see God differently. Jesus says, when you see me, you have seen the Father. Look at my sacrifice. Tear this temple down and I will raise it in three days. Jesus is that temple. The holder of God's glory. And the way in for us all. Let's pray. God, we have habits and patterns. We want to connect with you on our own terms, in our own ways. We get so used to seeing you through the lens of the prevailing culture around us, the people that we spend all our time with, the ways that we have experienced you in the past. We ask, would you make your great love and grace and mercy come alive to us so we can be emboldened to see the tables that you need to overturn? in our lives, in our structures, in our institutions. God, change us. Because of your sacrifice, cause us to step into life in a new way. Thank you for your word. Amen.